My name is John McAdam. It's the holiday season, so I don't have a song to mangle. Sean just uh, did something very <laughs> – Sean just became a very happy guy. Uh, thank you for listening, and this is Stick to Wrestling. It's the only Wicked Good Wrestling podcast out there. Give us 60 minutes, and we will give you a Wicked Good podcast. And with that, I want to bring on my convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, instead of us going on and on about how convivial you are, could you tell us – could you tell the listeners about our, stake, our Facebook page? Absolutely, but one correction about what you said. I may, not, I may be happy about it, but your little song deal has a following. So I mean, I don't, you know, so I, I think there would be unhappy people. The well, Facebook you know what page. happened, really? I, I'm like, okay, we we do a countdown. Show's about to start. And I'm like, oh man, I don't have a song. Oops. <laughs> Facebook page. If you have not joined the Facebook page, this this is what you missed this week. Who did Bob Backlund beat 40 years ago? Why is Billy Graham having a temper tantrum 37 years ago? Is Gypsy Joe the only man to wrestle Abraham Lincoln and Taz? If you were going to hold a wrestling card in Beesville, Tennis, Texas, where would it be? How did Jerry Graham's reverse Buddy Rose diet work out? Did a full, Rick, uh, Ricky Dozan ever get into a fight with a 49er lineman? How's Tony Marino? All this and pictures and all other kinds of old school wrestling goodness. So you need I, to join. I miss the Ricky Dozan thing. That's got to be against Domolini, right? Yep. Okay, that's what I figured. All right, uh, we are here. It's the final month of Stick to Wrestling for not only the year, but the decade as well. Get ready for that, kids. Uh, This is being released December 6, 2019. Would have been Nick Bockwinkle's 85th birthday. Nick Bockwinkle is an inner circle Hall of Famer, one of the greatest ever. And 33 years ago... Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez won the NWA Tag Team titles. I want to talk a little bit about that, but before I do, I want to bring on our guest this week. He's always a a popular favorite, Mr. Thomas Bain. Thomas, how are you? Season's greetings, John. Happy to be back on the show again to talk about something that occurred several years before I was born, the 1979 (laughs) PWI Awards. There you go. Yeah, and that's going to be our main focus, but I want to talk a little bit about Rudin Fernandez winning the tag team titles. This was, I mean, literally a couple of weeks, if not like 10 days before I started getting the Wrestling Observer newsletter, which kind of changed my outlook on pro wrestling. But even as someone who was a magazine mark, as I was when I saw that Rick Rudin, Manny Fernandez, they started teaming regularly, and it was announced the week before, next week, Rock and Roll Express def- defend the tag team titles against Rudin Fernandez, managed by Paul Jones. I figured it out right away that they were going to win the tag team titles. Why? Number one, I figured it was going to be a favor. Uh, a thank you note to Paul Jones, who got his head shaved at Starcade. And number two, this is what we're doing with Paul Jones moving forward now that his feud with Manny for with with Jimmy Valiant has finally come to an end after four long years. The thing is, I didn't really like this tag team very much. I know they're kind of remembered fondly, and I like them as individuals, both Rude and Fernandez. But I thought Rude, Fernandez, and Jones just never had any chemistry. Thomas, what are your thoughts on the Rude Fernandez team? Well, I kind of vary a bit to what you said about Paul Jones. I always originally thought that Crockett gave the belts to Rude and Fernandez when you already had, you know, the Road Warriors, the Midnights, Tully and Arn, the Rock and Rolls, 
I thought he did it to build two different stars in case somebody bolted for the WWF. He had somebody ready-made to be in that top program. Otherwise, I don't, know, I don't know why you wouldn't just play hot potato with those four tag teams right there. Giving it to Rude and Man, he said, okay, now we have a plan B if, if C and D jump over to the WWF. Yeah, that's true. And plus, I mean, Rude had just gotten there. Fernandez had just turned heel. Um, I had heard that they had plans for Rick Rude as a singles, but this is their way of establishing him. Sean, any thoughts on the Rude Fernandez team? I think they're remembered fondly because of that match. That was a great match. I thought that they won the titles from the Rock and Roll Express. I hated that match. How could you hate that match? I just saw it recently. I got pissed off again. I knew it was going to happen. I've seen the match before. It happened 20 years earlier, and I still got mad. I mean, that, that, that's a sign of a great match. Oh, okay. I mean, I got mad at Mr. Wrestling, too, for the stuff he was doing to Magnum TA years and years after I was first made aware of it. But, yeah, I thought the match was just too slow moving. It was too long. I did not Everything like it. Everything something. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I, I thought it, it just dragged out. I'm sorry. It was the uh, – uh, what's the what's the name of that Vietnam movie that came out in '79 with De Niro, with De Niro? The Deer Hunter. Deer the Deer. Hunter. It was the Deer Hunter of wrestling matches. That ain't fair. <laughs> uh, you'll never hear something like that. A comparison like that. Compare it to else. the Midnight Express now. Make it more depressing. <laughs> Oh, geez. <laughs> anyway, yeah, the whole Rude Fernandez thing unraveled in a really ugly manner. First, uh, Rick Rude left, so they announced that Paul Jones fired him or something, and that Fernandez and Koloff were now the tag team champions. But wait, a, he- a week later, Fernandez has also walked out. So they run an old tape of the Rock and Roll Express beating Rude and Fernandez, who are no longer the tag team champions, as per their announcement, for the titles. Uh, and everyone in the audience was wearing a coat, so you could tell it was an old match. It fell apart pretty badly. But anyway, as alluded to earlier, we are going to do part one of the 1979 Pro Wrestling Illustrated Awards. Um, basically, you all know that Pro Wrestling Illustrated came out with uh, awards at the end of every year. They it, it, they had a ballot. You could send in a ballot. I don't know what they did with the ballots. If they just went straight to the trash or if they opened them to laugh at them. But it was this, the staff of the After Magazines that made the decision. So let's start with the most imp- – and by the way, we are going to use – uh, after magazine standards for this and what does that mean well the after magazines a focused on north on united states and canada wrestling and number two they acted as if the sport was a shoot which is you know a good part to that so basically we're giving we're giving the wrestler of the year award to whoever got the best push and with that theirs was number one harley race Number two, Dusty Rhodes. Number three, Jimmy Snuka. And number four, Bob Backlund. Thomas Bain, first, your thoughts on their list. I think that list is – I'm kind of surprised that Jimmy was so far up considering the fact you only held the Mid-Atlantic U.S. title and Mid-Atlantic tag titles with uh, Orndorff and and gave it up. Was never really in the world title picture – and I kind of wonder, because this is the first year that PWI did the award. I think in Victory Sports, it did it all the way up until from 72 to 78. And 79 was the first year that PWI had did it. But I you know, can't remember a year where 
Go ahead, John. No, I, I was going to say, you just made a really good point. PWI didn't start coming out until the summer of 1979. And I'm lying when I tell you that PWI did these awards. It was Sports Review Wrestling who either like either the wrestler or sports review wrestling were doing the awards by this point. We're always doing the awards before then, but they're kind of now retroactively known as the PWI awards, but you're right. This came out in sports review wrestling. And I I still, I'm trying to think back to where a guy who wasn't in the world title picture, either a long-term challenger or even champion was in the, 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 first three runners up let alone winner so jimmy being up here is kind of surprising in 79 but looking at it i mean i would have to go with harley race just by the fact that backland he gave if you're going on a total kayfabe standpoint here technically he lost the belt to enoki in japan he had the belt held up against bobby duncombe harley kind of just ran rough shot in 79 oh boy jimmy you know what, though? The Japan – now, here's another, like, PWI rule. They never acknowledged that Bob Backlund lost the title in Japan. I think I've told this uh, on the show before. I remember one of the non-Aptor magazines came out with a story that Inoki won the belt, and I see pictures of his match against Bob Backlund. I see Inoki with the WWF Heavyweight Championship, and I'm just like, nah, no title change. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I think Snuka is kind of weird in here. He doesn't really fit in. Yes, the United States Championship was really important. Uh, yes, he was getting his first push, but I don't know. I just I, I think he he's the odd man out here. Um, I don't mind Jimmy there. I, I, there are other guys you could put there. You could put Tommy Rich. He had a great year. You could. There's really no clear cut four guy. Uh, Ric Flair. It wasn't a huge flair year but jimmy can't i mean this was really his first national exposure where he kind of became a big name and he had a huge year he was c- crazy over in uh, jcp so I, I don't really have a major problem with it harley's the winner this is his last great year i think even on steve yoey's list they had him as the you know the winner so it, it i have no problem there it was a big year for dusty and you know a good year for bob this is really the one category i don't have a major problem with anything here all right, uh, Thomas. Give us your like. Uh, give us what your what your listing would be for this. Your awards for just wrestler of the year, or, all, or how do you mean, how do you want to do this? Uh, for wrestler of the year, I, I would go Harley one. Obviously, uh, as I said, I would go uh, Dusty two, Bob three, and at four, I, I would go Flair actually. I mean, Flair had a huge year. I have Ric Flair at number four. He had a huge year. He had established himself as the number one babyface in in the Mid-Atlantic Territory after he had been – Yeah, he, I, I think it's fair to say he'd been the lead heel since around 76. It's funny. Um, when Flair turned, when I first read, it, read about it in the magazines, I could not believe it. I thought it was just – it's almost like this has to be wrong. Ric Flair is the most evil guy in the world. As time went on, the the, the turn seemed more and more inevitable. Of course, they were going to turn him at some point. Sean, who are your top guys for the 1979 PWI Wrestler of the Year Award? I hate to admit it, but I pretty much agree with your list, John. I mean, maybe Tommy Rich at four, because uh, that was his big breakout year. I mean, there's a couple wrestling, too, had a great year in 79. But, I mean, there's no way. Uh, Pat Patterson. Had a great, yeah, maybe Pat. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, I would say Rick's fine at four. Okay. The, everyone else is good. So you would have had Harley at one. Yep. Dusty at two. Backlund three. All right. And then uh, say Ric Flair four. All right. I have Dusty Rhodes. I'm sorry, Thomas. Go ahead. Are we all in unison on this? I'm sorry? Are we all, are we in, all unison? in unison? Yeah, I just be used to it. But yeah, <laughs> on this one we are. Okay. Yeah, my top five, I have Dusty Rhodes as number one. Uh, it was a tough one between my my top three. I just figured that Dusty, he had a huge year anyway, but this was the year he finally broke through and won his first NWA title. And you um, hate Harley. What's that? And you hate Harley. I don't hate Harley. <laughs> what, you have, a, what you have a very firm anti-Harley. Your opinion on Harley is like my opinion on Backlund. I I do not hate Harley Race. I was a huge fan of Harley Race. You have but, said many times on this show how much you got sick of Harley Race by the time you got around right around to this point. That that is true. Probably not at this point. Probably by this point the next year. Um but by that time, I wanted a new NWA champion. But, yeah, I mean, there's a big difference between me thinking uh, four-plus years with the title is a little bit too much as opposed to me actively disliking the guy. I'm a big Harley Race fan. I, 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 yeah, this is his last great year. I agree with you, though. The next year, he, he shouldn't be in consideration after yeah, that. I, I would have liked to have seen a permanent new champion in 1980. But anyway, I have Rhodes number one. It, top three are very close. I had Harley Race number two because I hate him. And Bob Backlund number three, he had his first full year as WWF champion. And he's as he is by the time 79 came and went, I felt like he had established himself as the WWF champion, not the new guy anymore, but yeah. the guy. Number four, I had Ric Flair. Number five, I had Pat Patterson because he helped make that happen for Bob Backlund. Um, he had a huge year. I I ha wanted to kind of shoehorn Nick Bockwinkle in here somewhere because he went on and just kept being Nick Bockwinkle an all-time great, even with Bobby Heenan gone for most of the year. But I, I just couldn't shoehorn him in. An additional thing on Pat is that he was also the tag team champion with the AWA that year. That is an excellent point. I remember him debuting on WWF TV, managed by the Grand Wizard, saying, hey, what's going on here? He's the AWA tag team champions. But I kind of figured out that, well, that means he's losing those titles. So anyway... Next up, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated, or I guess I'd call them the Aftermags Tag Team of the Year for 1979. This was, you know what, this was a tough one, although I think number one, my number one is a clear number one when you stop and think about it. But there are a lot of great tag teams. Their awards, number one was Ivan Putsky and Tito Santana. Number two, uh, Jerry and Johnny Valiant. Number three, Paul Jones and Baron Von Raschke. And number four, The Spoiler and Mark Lewin. Uh, Thomas, can you share your thoughts about their top four? When I looked at their top four and I saw Putsky and Tito and uh, the Valiant Brothers, the first thing I did was I scrolled down the rest of the list and, and I kind of nodded my head and realized the PWI was playing politics. They didn't want to have too many NWA guys versus too few WWF guys, sprinkling a few, you know, here, a few there. I, I, that's the only reason I could see both the Valiants and Ivan and Tito on here. I, I, the Valiants 
were made to look like full, going to be the second best tag team of the year when they were losing basically handicap matches to Andre the Giant in 79 is, is laughable to me. That, you know, and it, what you said is totally true. I mean, you could see it even when there was no wrestling war, that these awards were very political. For example, they gave world class a little bit of a nod with the spoiler and Mark Lewin. I just can't see them at number four. And then when the wrestling war broke out, I mean, look out. These awards were turned into like a major political pawns with, you know, always going out of their way to please Dusty Rhodes uh, by giving him individual awards and the nwa awards over uh mid-south and the wwf and our good ship agreement is about to uh hit, hit, hit a rock um actually the spoiling loon is the one team here i don't have a major problem with because they basically carried the heel side of dallas for the entire year um so they were significant this isn't even paul jones best team this year his team with steamboat was better than this True, but uh, and by the way, we recorded this. We're recording this on Wednesday the fourth. I found out that on December third, nineteen seventy eight, is the is the day that Paul Jones turned on Ricky Steamboat. So they still weren't. They were no longer together in seventy nine. Okay, so I, I'm still not having them there though. Right. Um, Jerry and Johnny Vine. No, I just figured there was a Putsky bribe. Maybe Thomas is right. There was a whole politics thing. Uh, no, I, I, I said the, I sent you notes of this, and I, it was basically just a breakdown for each category, just to, so we so looking at the same thing until we get to the tag team, where there's like two pages of me complaining. Um, these, this is I just off the top of my head, I'm thinking. Uh, Blonde Bombers, Wrecking Crew, Stevenson Patterson, Lawler Dundee, the Von Erics, Ole and Ivan, Hill, Rich and the Crusher, Graham and Kern, the Briscoes, Lane and St. John, Watson Robley, the Freebirds. I will put all of those guys ahead of the four there on that list. Wow. And as far as my team of the year, uh, here's where we're going to disagree. I, honestly, I'm like, you guys are going to bust my up about this, but I'm sitting there trying to like talk myself out of it, and I can't. Lane They're my Paris. number one. One is no, Latham. I don't even know who I don't even know who, who you have. Go ahead. Latham and Ferris, the Blonde Bombers. Oh wow, they were great. Wait, I don't. I'm, I'll defend it. They were great. They were heat machines all year long. They could work heel matches. This isn't like the Moon Dog, uh, Larry Latham. Okay, this is the guy who is a great Southern wrestling heel in the ring, and no one was more obnoxious than Wayne Ferris at this time. It was just the sum. The sum was greater than the parts. This was a fantastic year for them, in a down year for tag teams. I. But here's the other part of it. I mean, we're, we're talking. You know, PWI. If pro wrestling was a was a shoot. I mean, Memphis compared to the WWF, Mid Atlantic, Georgia, etc. I mean, they're a step down from those territories. So those guys are big fish in in a small pond. That may well be true, but they've given Memphis guys awards before. They have. I, I just think there's a lot of competition here. But, you know, at least you're thinking for yourself independently. And that's what oh, I will defend. I, I absolutely about. think this is this was they dominated uh, not only Memphis, but all of Tennessee and uh, some others, I'm, at least all of Tennessee for pretty much the entire year. Yeah, but that's like saying, you know, Team X in Mid-Atlantic dominated Virginia, South Carolina and North Carolina. Right. Well, and North like, Georgia. Exactly what Jones and Von Raschke did. 
And they didn't even do that. I don't know. Well, I'm like, hey, you know, that's where we're all about opinions here. Who's your number two? Uh, let's see. Two, I would say Stevenson and uh, Stevens and Patterson. Okay, good choice. Uh, I would say Lawler, Dundee at three, Ole and Ivan at four. All right. Here's what I had. <laughs> number one, I had the Georgia tag team of Ivan Koloff and Ole Anderson. I had them because they were, first of all, they were the tag team champions. They teamed regularly. They were the main event very often in a major promotion. That's why I went with them. Um, They did the angle where the two of them beat up Dusty Rhodes in a parking lot with a lead pipe or something, and they made a lot of money from that angle, and it was Dusty with various tag team partners going up against Ole and Koloff, and then they had Tommy Rich and a bunch of guys going against Ole and Koloff. Once again, in the main event, going around the horn, including the the city auditorium and the Omni in Atlanta. Um, number two, for similar reasons, Paul Jones and Baron Von Raschke in the Mid-Atlantic Territory, they were the NWA Tag Team Champions, and frequently they were in the main event in the main town against Flair and Mulligan more often than not, or Steamboat and Youngblood towards the end of the year. Uh, number three, I went with the Valiant Brothers. Even though they had, I think, I thought their late 78, 79 run was a disappointment because they seemed like such a big deal when they were here in 74 and 75. You know, I thought, and I think they thought they were going to get uh, that part two, but it never happened. Probably partially because Jimmy got sick. I was going to say, point of contention, this is not that valiant team. That's that's a really good point. They brought in Johnny, who was uh, not Johnny, Jerry, Jerry, Guy Mitchell, uh, Guy Mitchell, who was an excellent worker, but did not have the charisma of Johnny or Jerry. And the other two Valiants hated him. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. I've heard well, that the, the three of them just didn't get along. Yeah, Bo uh, has said it here. What's that? Bo James has said it here. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, but at the same time, they were a big deal. They they were not at Madison Square Garden, but they did get main events in like the the smaller arenas. Um, they had uh, Johnny got main events against Bob Backlund. He got a, a big one at the Philadelphia Spectrum. Uh, Jimmy got some main events against Backlund. So they they were a big deal. And let's face it, the WWF was a huge territory. So. They dominated this tag team scene for most of the year, and I went with them. Number four, Vern Gagne and Mad Dog Vachon. Uh, very much an oddball tag team. Won the AWA tag team title, something you'd never think Vern would would do at this point in his career. But it, it would, you know, they got a big push and came as a big surprise. Number five is my version of uh, Ferris and uh, Moon. What's his name? Wayne Wait, Ferris. Larry Latham. Larry Latham, thank you. Uh, the Kiwi Sheep Herders out in Portland. Yeah. Um, big fish in a small pond, but they got a huge push. Uh, it pained me to leave out the tag teams of Jimmy Snooker and Paul Orndorff and Gino Hernandez and El Gran Marcus. So that's kind yeah. of me saying I don't think it was all spoiler and Lewin down in, in Dallas. Well, I mean, they were a big part. Again, I, I, I didn't put them in my top four, but I'm saying if I'm going to defend one of the four, that's it. I don't like any of them. 
Um, <laughs> I, I can I can think of ten guys over any of those four that I just listed off. That that was just off the top of my head from that year. It's a terrible list from them. Yeah, uh, it, it kind of yeah, is. My, yeah. What's that? Honestly, my top four. I don't know if we were going to go on four, but I, my top four pretty much bounces around yours. But I had Stevenson Patterson at four. I'll be very quick with this. I had Flair and Mulligan at three. Uh, Paul Jones and the Baron at two. And at number one, I had actually, I went a little bit off the reservation there, and I went with Snook and Orndorff. Snook and Orndorff is absolutely defensible. They got a huge push at the beginning of 1979. And by Vaughn Erics, I went with uh, the Kevin David Fritz trio of them, so I didn't really sequester to two of the three or two of the four at that point in time. You know what? They gave it to the Freebirds as a three-man tag, so you're totally allowed to do that. I remember I was in New York, February 1979. I was at Grand Central Station, ready to come home, and I picked up a copy of The Wrestler where I learned that Paul Jones had turned on Ricky Steamboat, which just shocked me. I mean, it was probably the most biggest wrestling storyline shock I'd ever I'd ever experienced. And number two, this guy I'd never heard of, Paul Orndorff, was part of the NWA Tag Team Champions with Jimmy Snuka, who I had no idea had come to the Carolinas. So two big surprises for me. But anyway, uh, all right, match of the year. Now, this one's a little bit tough because it doesn't go by Wrestling Observer standards, which, by the way, I'd like to do a Wrestling Observer type show for 79, even though they didn't even have their awards by then. Um, Theirs was the most significant match of the year, uh, the biggest match, if you were. Uh, They gave it to August 21st, 1979. Dusty Rhodes beats Harley Race for the NWA title. They only had one match. They didn't give us four. Uh, Thomas, what was your 1979 match of the year? It's really hard to go against Dusty Harley, but if I'm going to have a contrarian opinion here, it would probably be Bob Backlund, Pat Patterson, and the cage at MSG. That's my number two. Um, if you go on the, uh, the the Pro Wrestling Illustrated website and you go through their past, they actually do put four down for this category for this year. They it, did. They, yeah, they did. They have uh, Backlund Patterson, Backlund Bockwinkle from uh, Toronto. On March 25th, and uh, wrestling to an early Ernie Lad in the Superdome on uh, July 21st okay, for the North wow. American title. All right, thank you for that. I I did not know, so I'm assuming the Backlund Patterson cage match was number two. Uh, yes, the order they had Backlund Patterson at uh, this was uh, September 24th at MSG, and that was two, and then Backlund Bockwinkle, which I've never seen. I've never seen the last two, so I'm not sure. Okay, uh, Backlund Bockwinkle, to me, the bloom was off the rose, so to speak, when it came to unification matches. At the same time, it's still ba- Backlund Bockwinkle. Uh, and two versus Lad was the, I think that was the main event of the Superdome show with two defending the North American title. I guess I can look that up after the show. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so Thomas, your number one was. Uh, Backlund versus Patterson in the cage match. Did you have a number two? I would, I would have flip-flopped one and two as a tell PWI had it, actually. I would I would go that route with uh, with uh, Backlund-Patterson one and then uh, Race Rhodes number two. Three, 
it's really hard for me to pinpoint a, a single match because they all kind of really blend together. But I would be really hard pressed in 1979 to not include a Jerry Lawler uh, Mid South match, Mid South Coliseum match in there somewhere in that top five. One of the one you. of the blow off programs that he had there, whether whether it was you know Latham and Ferris or whoever it was at that point in time. And Sean can probably go into much greater detail on that than me, so I'll let I'll, I'll hand it off to him. Yeah, oh, Sean, tell us the, what you think Memphis uh, match of the year was to 79. Um, I believe there's a very good Bockwinkle uh, Lawler match in there. Um, you could do the Tupelo match, which, I mean, it, I know it kind of gets the reputation for what happened to the concession stand. But, I mean, leading up, that was that made sense if you watched the whole rest of the match, which leads me back to how great Latham and Ferris were, is that they were so obnoxious that it was obvious that Dundee and Lawler's reaction would be just to completely flip out and destroy everything. Because that made perfect sense. They were that annoying. Um, so, yeah, you could put that match. But if I have to go by the standard that you're saying, which is, you know, the standard, and what we're looking at here, it's race and roads. NWA title switch automatically gets it always. And after that, you'd have to say Backlund Bockwinkle because it was, you know, you're talking about a unification. Yes, the rose is off. I agree. It's still a unification. Um, and it's still Backlund Bockwinkle. Yeah, it's still Backlund Bockwinkle. Uh, I mean, but if this is by observer standards, this is Backlund Patterson all day. Okay. Yeah, and you know, like I said, we'll do we'll do a show on on yeah. that one. I'll, I actually have to think about that. I'm not sure if if that one. It definitely was an excellent match. I don't know if I can come up with one better that I've actually seen. Here is my top four, and you you know you can tell I've got. It looks like I've got a little bit WWF bias here. Uh, number one, finally Dusty Rhodes wins the NWA title from Harley Race on August 21st, 1979. We've expressed on this show how much we hated the idea of Dusty losing the title with a broken arm by DQ uh, seven days later or whatever it was. I don't even think it was seven days later. But in a vacuum, that is match of the year by PWI standards. Number two. As I stated, I have the Bob Backlund versus Pat Patterson cage match. Um, it is the only time someone got four matches at Madison Square Garden against Bob Backlund. Uh, it was a great historic match. It ended a huge feud between Bob Backlund and Patterson, the intercontinental heavyweight champion. Number three, I went with the Bob Backlund versus Greg Valentine match, their first ever match from February 19th, 1979, which was released on WWE Network, I want to say like six months ago, and I thought it was just a fantastic match. We don't really take that into consideration for this, but it was the young, upcoming superstar Greg Valentine Invading the WWF for the first time, uh, having a major series against Bob Backlund. And, you know, I thought it was a big deal both now and at the time. Number th- number four, and I don't have the date in front of me. I think it was uh, off the top of my head, July 24th, 1979. It was the Bob Backlund versus Pat Patterson, their first match where it was just a few weeks after Pat Patterson won the Intercontinental title on television from Ted DiBiase by knocking him out after taking a pair of brass knuckles out of his trunks and KOing DiBiase. They used that finish to set up this match where Patterson used the brass knucks to to you know knock out, not knock out Bob Backlund, but bloody him up and get the match started. 
and you should have seen the heat when Patterson went into his tr- trunks to get that foreign object. I mean, Madison Square Garden went crazy, and when he was, went to go use it, it went crazy. So, again, Patterson, you know, was a really big deal. He came into Wrestle Backlund. That's why I went with that one, number four. Sean, any final thoughts for from either you or Thomas? Uh, like I said, this was just be, by the category. It's an obvious one. It has to be the NWA title match because I mean, what what is the most significant match? If there's an NWA title switch, that's it. Back then, I mean, everything else is secondary. All right, Thomas. Any parting when thoughts talk- on? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, when we talk about like these interpromotional matches, like Backlund and Bockwinkle, to me. I think almost every single interpromotional match has been a disappointment with the exception of Harley Race, Billy Graham. So I can't really just go ahead and put that in the top three, top five on reputation alone, because the ones we have seen have been complete stinkers. Oh, I'm not saying on reputation at all. I'm just saying on the significance of it. If we're going by Pro Wrestling Illustrated standards, it's a significant match. I agree with you. Only one's been anywhere near decent. Yeah, um, I mean, the race-backland match from Madison Square Garden from 1980 was absolutely awful, and I have not seen the Omni match from July 4th, 1982 with Flair versus Backland. I don't think anyone who wasn't at the arena has seen it, but that match had the reputation also of being absolutely awful. And even the race and superstar match was in a downpour at the Orange Bowl. Yeah. I mean, supposedly they did the best they could with what they had, but I mean, you've got superstar Billy Graham in a soaked ring, you know, so, I mean, that's not anyone's fault. It's just, hey, that's what happens in Miami. All right. Feud of the year. This did not exist uh, in the Aftermag Awards for 1979, yet I have my list anyway, uh, but Thomas is the guest, and Thomas, I would like to start with you. 1979, feud of the year, in your opinion. It's hard to go, you know, to the safe answer and go with with Backlund, you know, Patterson, Backlund, Duncan, Backlund, Valentine. I'm going to go with Lawler, and I, I don't really want to include Dundee in this. I'm going to put Lawler on, you know, on a on the side, but Lawler versus Latham and Ferris. I, I think in in a vacuum alone, that was the best feud. In, in professional wrestling 1979. Okay. I also do not have Bob Backlund. Any of Bob Backlund's is number one. Um, but that that's interesting because it, it was an interesting feud. Um, it wasn't in a top territory, but, you know, I have, I've certainly seen the 1979 Memphis footage that's out there. And I don't want anyone thinking, you know, that I don't like it or didn't respect it. It was great stuff. Since when is Memphis not a top territory? Since the beginning of time. Memphis always, always drew and always drew big crowds. They drew as much as anybody outside of like the top, top tier. That there's some truth to that. I think there's also some myth to that. I have seen a lot of mid of footage from the Mid-South Coliseum where there are a lot of empty seats. And this is long before the war started in 1984. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I I'm not saying. Sh- past- Go ahead, Thomas. Once you get past the WWF and and to an extension Crockett in Georgia, I would put, you know, in the late 70s, you know, before the war, early 80s, I would put Memphis on par with Dallas or with Florida or with Mid-South. 
And then when cable came around, then then the, you know off to the races. But I would put them as a as a as a three A just behind the AWA in the late in the late seventies. Yeah, here here's the way I see it. Um, the guys go to Memphis. Portland and Memphis stand out to me, and I'm not saying anything bad about the territories. I enjoyed those two territories, but you went there to, to become a star somewhere else. Like you didn't see Jimmy Snuka going from mid Atlantic to Portland. He went from Portland to mid Atlantic. You didn't see guys, you know, leave Florida or mid South or the WWF for Memphis. You saw them leave Memphis for those territories to get pushes. And that's why, that's why I have those two territories ranked slightly below the other ones that, you know, frankly got more coverage in the magazines. There's one other reason why guys didn't go there to become a star on Jimmy Valiant did but guys didn't go there to become a stars because you had ho- so many homesteaders there that you you weren't getting past Jerry Lawler. No, you weren't. And Jerry Lawler would have been a star anywhere well, anywhere in the world. Yep. So I mean, Terry why, why would you well establishing when back to Memphis? Terry Funk's a great example of that. Terry Funk was a star and went to Memphis after the fact. Um, of course, that's that's an outlier. Of course, obviously, but Memphis is is. It, we don't besmirch ECW for building stars for WCW WWF. We accepted it for what it was, and and you play the hand, the play you play the cards you're dealt in that matter. And I think without a shadow of a doubt, Memphis was at worst from you know seventy five to eighty five. At worst, the fourth best promotion. At worst, it was the third, third between third, three and four. I would say they were nowhere. I think they were better than Florida. I think they were better than Mid-South up until like 1983. I think they were better than Dallas up until 82. So Dallas you're is a good a seven-year portion. Yeah. You're looking at a seven-year ticket where Memphis was, you know, I don't want to call it the top indie promotion in wrestling, but, you know, if you're looking at it from a 2019 perspective, it was the best indie promotion in wrestling. No, that's that's a good point. By the way, I do have in 1979. Definitely, we have Dallas in that same kind of bowl as Portland and Memphis. I like your analogy when you when you ECW to uh, during the Monday Night Wars. Like Taz leaves ECW after being their top star for how God knows how long after being fed the promotion to get him over. And he, when he went to the WWF, he was a middle of the card guy. He was just another, another guy there. Same thing with Sandman in WCW. You know, he was a huge star in ECW, not so much in WCW. And that that's how it went for a lot of the Memphis guys. I don't know. But anyway, Thomas, Thomas, I'm sorry. The bullets are flying as, as usual. Did we get your your top five list? Uh, for a few of the year, well, few of the year, I'd have to put in there. Uh, obviously, the number one would be Lawler versus Latham and Ferris. Two would be really Backlund versus Albano, and whatever you know, guys Albano put in front of him. I'd put that as number two. Three, I would go. I would go Paul Jones and uh, Ricky Steamboat because that was going to be that was you know wailing into '79, and from there, I mean, I think really four through seven, it's really subjective. I could go you know several different ways on that, and I really kind of feel like I'm I'm being anti-political here because I've gone through three awards now. I've mentioned the AWA or Florida one time, and I kind of feel like I'm shortchanging them at this point. Yeah, you're you're not. I mean, just because those were excellent 
promotions, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to place in the top five for all this. I mean, let's face it. I like the AWA, but they weren't exactly like, you know, doing enjoy, you know, top feuds or great angles, anything like that. Well, one angle. What about Mad Dog and uh, Vern? I mean, that was, I mean, that was kind of, I mean, that certainly popped the area. You mean just just the angle of like those two old time enemies and they've been enemies for decades teaming up? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why one big reason why they got on my list as tag team of the year. So, I mean, I would put that would be one of them is that the the feud that brought them together. Um, Jeez, it's uh, Kernan Land against St. John and um, uh, Kernan um, Graham against St. John and Lane. Uh, my one would be the same as Thomas's. I mean, that was by far. This is not like a huge feud year. There's no Zabisco Bruno here. Um, but I mean, that that was the one feud that just popped. I mean, it was. You could tell that Jerry. I was reading something leading up to this. Uh, Lance said it once before, and then Dundee on one of those little podcasts where he had a hair across his ass against Lola for some reason, and he goes, "You nearly killed your uncle Wayne, uh, your cousin Wayne, with the mustard jar." <laughs> and it was when he – there was a brawl. He hooked the mustard jar and he missed him by about eight inches, and the thing exploded against the wall behind him. I mean there was just something – there was like a chemistry, and I'm throwing Dundee in there too because he was adding to it. That whole feud between those four was just fantastic all year long. Okay, so that, that's your number one. Cool. Yeah. All right. What's your, what's your two through five? Um, uh, I would say, again, the one with um, – who was it Akbar? That uh, that ended up bringing Mad Dog and Vern together again. Akbar, who who brought them together? I can't remember the the feud that brought them together again. The uh, in the AWA in '79. Oh, uh, I mean Patterson and Stevens were the tag team champions. I think they were managed by he. No, they weren't managed by Heenan. Heenan was in Georgia. Um, so yeah. I actually don't know the angle that brought them together. Uh, if someone, an AWA fan, and we have them for, you know, from 79, could put that on our Facebook group, that would be really cool. Okay, well, I, I like you guys' picks. Um, here are mine. Number one, I thought there was one really good feud that in 1979 – that I'm not going to say is comparable to Bruno Zabisco, but I thought the best feud of 1979, the feud of the year, if you will, was Dusty Rhodes against Terry Funk. The falling out from Terry Funk breaking Dusty Rhodes' arm before that, uh, before his next match against Harley Race and losing the belt back, they had a really good feud. Uh, Funk also had a really good feud with uh, Manny Fernandez thrown in the mix with Dusty Rhodes. Uh, Funk just made an amazing comeback. He was an amazing heel. There was a movie out in 1979. It was called Ten. It featured uh, a brand new movie star named Bo Derek who had braids in her hair, and that became kind of a, a thing with the girls. And Terry Funk went out and got braids in his hair. It was wonderful. Uh, my number two was Bob Backlund versus Pat Patterson, which I thought was a very memorable feud, not only just because it you know had that magic number four next to it, but because they went around the horn and the whole thing was really good. And it was an excellent story that Pat Patterson stole the Intercontinental title from Ted DiBiase, and his intent was to steal the WWF title from Backlund in the exact same manner. My number three, another really good one, I thought, 
Paul Jones versus Ricky Steamboat. The teacher turns on the student and becomes the most hated wrestler in the game. Uh, also, Paul Jones versus Ric Flair got consideration from me, or I, I guess it would have been Paul Jones and Baron Von Raschke against Ric Flair, but it didn't make my top five. Number four was Dusty Rhodes and various partners against Ole Anderson and Ivan Koloff. We talked about the angle that, you know, set that one off. And number five, just in general, it's Gino Hernandez and whoever he was teaming with, whether it be El Grand Marcus or Pac Song or Mark Lewin against Kerry and Kevin Von Erich. Thomas, can you share your thoughts? I, I, feel like I, I, you've hit the nail on the head there. I can't believe I admitted Dusty Terry Funk, actually. I, I feel like that probably should have been in, that, in my top three, but I, I, can't, uh, I can't dispute either of you guys with, with your top five. I don't see a single thing wrong with them in any aspect. My only sorrowing about the Funk feud is the fact that why it was done with the broken arm and the NWA title thing, which is annoying. But yeah, as far as execution, Terry was his usual brilliant self. And we'll talk more about this when we do uh, part two of this episode next week. Terry Funk in the United States had kind of been forgotten. He did not have any major pushes, any major uh, anything since he lost the NWA title to Harley Race on, I think it was February 7th, 1977. I mean, he was... You know, he legitimately needed knee surgery and he worked Japan, but he did not do basically anything except for, I think, a little St. Louis until like two and a half years later when he returns to Florida. But was there was there a movie in here he was in? Yes, uh, it was a movie with Sylvester Stallone. And I'm trying to think of the name. It was really bad. Don't watch it, people. It was an awful movie. It was like about club fighting or something like that in Philadelphia and it just sucked. I guarantee you Lou's going to have this. Lou's going to know this by the time we're done, but uh, yeah, I, I actually went to see it at the theater for no other reason than Terry Funk was in a movie and he's a pro wrestler. And he Paradise was a kid. Alley. What's that? Paradise Alley. Thank you. Paradise Alley. How could I forget? And yeah, and then I saw it on cable. And even as a kid, I'm like, man, this stinks. And I saw it maybe 10 years ago, and it was just as awful as it had ever been. But that's what you get when Sylvester Stallone can just do whatever he wants and doesn't have to make good movies anymore. But anyway, I think we have time for one more category. The PWI or the After Magazine Most Popular Wrestler of the Year. And please let me give you theirs. Number one is Dusty Rhodes. Number two is Andre the Giant. First time we've heard his name. Number three is Ivan Putski. And number four is Mr. Wrestling 2. Thomas Bain, you're the guest. Can I get your reaction to their top four? I mean, they pretty much hit the nail on the head in terms of the big time promotions. My my number one is Dusty Rhodes. Um, I think he would have been the most over babyface no matter what company he would have been in from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon. Andre is a comparable number two in the fact that he was, you know, over and popular everywhere. But I don't know if he would have in 79 maintained the same popularity had he stayed in one place for six months to a year like Dusty did. No, there's absolutely no way. Husky was in, insanely over. I would put I would put Lawler at three. However, and then at four, at four I would go actually with um, with David Von Erich. 
You know, that's an interesting that's an interesting one because David was on the rise both in Dallas and St. Louis. Yeah, I had a, uh, a, a du- go ahead, Thomas. I was like, if you recall on the WWE Network, there's a match I believe in St. Louis from I believe the fall of '78, where he wrestled Harley Race and Harley kind of just you know on the house mic gives him the decree of this guy's going to be a world champion someday and kind of gives him his blessing even though Harley was a heel and David was a over babyface. And you got to remember, David was 18 or 19 years old at that point. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And at five, um, just going by everything, I, I guess you begrudgingly got to say Backlund because he's the world champion or for it, Bob Backlund. I go Backlund four. And at five, I think five is, is Ric Flair, actually, at that point in time in 79. Well, I've got him at number three, so it's not that crazy, Thomas. I, again, would have Dusty. I think that's an easy one. I, uh, this was a big Dusty year. Uh, if, if you remember the response he got when he won the title, that was not faked. That place no. went nuts. So, uh, yeah, he, Andre at two. Yeah, fine. Uh, I just He's not in the main event. I can't do it. Um, I, I wrestling too. You know what? I didn't see it, but he's you know he's main event in the Superdome, so I mean he must be doing something right. And the Omni. Uh, and he was. And, go ahead. No, I was going to say and the Omni. And, yeah, I was going to say and the Omni too. So I mean, it's yeah, I have no problem I'm, there. David Von Erich's another good one, and so was um, uh, so was Jerry Lawler. Another one with consideration is uh Tommy Rich. This was again his really first big popular year on the big stage in Georgia. All right. I can see that. Let me, let me say something about PWI's top four. Um, I always, Dusty Rhodes, I, Dusty Rhodes is my number one. He, Dusty was at his peak. His peak was ending right around now. That's 76 through 79. Like right now, he's probably just about to start falling backward in Florida. Um, But he got my number one. So I agree with Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Andre the Giant, when it comes to stuff like this, when it comes to ranking him every year, wrestler of the year, most popular, whatever, he is really, really, really tough to rank i mean because and it's because he didn't stay in one place uh he didn't win titles he was usually in a novelty match very rarely was it was he in a feud uh the only real feud i'm aware of that andre was in at this time, like throughout his entire career was when he kind of had a, a feud with Ernie Ladd in New York. Um, then, then again, he kind of went around the horn with with Ernie Ladd. So we'll, we'll say Ernie Ladd, but that's it. They didn't start using him, in my opinion, correctly until the WWF started regularly bringing in big men for him to go up against, starting with Hulk Hogan in 1980. Then they had the weird thing with Killer Khan in 81, uh, Blackjack Mulligan in 82, and then Big John Studd in 83. Um, to me, that's how you use Andre the Giant. And I know I've said this before. To this day, I don't understand how they didn't have a big Andre the Giant versus Bruiser Brody program in 76 or 77. But anyway, um, 
Ivan Putski at number three, I totally don't get that one. Yes, he was over in the Northeast, no question. Um, very popular wrestler, but I just don't see him in the top ten. He wasn't even the number one guy in his own promotion. The most popular guy in the WWF was Bob Backlund. Um, you can even argue Dusty Rhodes in the WWF because he was around 1979. Uh, Mr. Wrestling 2, I agree with. He definitely – he didn't make my top five, but I can't argue with him number four. Uh, with that, here is my top five, uh, and it was hard for me not to get Jerry Lawler and Mr. Wrestling 2 in there. But number one, Dusty Rhodes, like I said, he peaked. My number two is Tommy Rich, the brand-new spanking hot star – Red hot in Georgia. Um, when you it came to the point where you put Tommy Rich on the road away from Georgia, he was drawing on the road because of WTBS. Um, number three, Ric Flair. The turn that you know we talked earlier, uh, it was inevitable, even though I didn't know it. And when he turned, he became an incredibly popular wrestler in the Carolinas. Similar vein to Ric Flair, I have Blackjack Mulligan as number four, 1979. He was a huge star who had just turned in the Carolinas. And number five, look, the Northeast loved Bob Backlund. That's all there was to it. If you go back and watch a 1979 79 match from the Spectrum or Madison Square Garden involving Bob Backlund. Those are your only two choices. I mean, he gets such a huge reaction from that crowd. They eat the guy up. He could be higher. Uh, again, Lawler and two. It was hard not putting them in, but I've only got five spots for seven guys. So there you go. Well, I mean, it's. <sighs> Oh, yeah, I, I really – you may be right about it too. I'm just going on the fact that he's you know, he's main eventing in these two buildings. One other thing about Rich though, and we talked about this in another show. At one point during the year, and I, I don't know the reasoning, but they when they sent the AWA guys down to Georgia, one of the things they did was they put the crusher with Tommy. And I think the idea was to give Tommy the rub from the crusher. It ended up working the reverse mm-hmm. is that Tom, the crusher ended up getting credit in Georgia by hanging around Tommy. Tommy was at this point. He was the it guy. Uh, it, it just you could feel it off him, and he would keep that position for another about two, three years. Yeah, I mean, and it was in Georgia at this point. They had a clear pecking order of who was the top baby faces. Mister Wrestling Two was the top baby face, but Tommy Rich he was like that number two who was coming on. And it, when you look back and, you know, maybe this is revisionist history, but it, it almost seems like the Tommy Rich versus Mr. Wrestling feud uh, for who was going to be number one in that territory with Mr. Wrestling to being the heel. And they almost did it in 1981. We talked about that here on the show. I mean, looking back, it seemed in- inevitable. Oh, that was a painful attempt in 81, too. Oh, it was. It, it, oh. God, I mean, basically, the idea was that that they were going to have them feud over the fact that uh, Tommy won the most popular wrestler of the year. And two came off as the whiniest person. And and it was it was terrible. They aborted it within about, what, two, three weeks. Yeah, they they did. And I remember that they made it obvious that, you know, two was turning. And then for whatever reason, they backed off of it. I mean, two was insufferable in 1984 when they did a very similar angle in Mid-South when he became uh, Magnum T.A.'s mentor, and then he became jealous of Magnum T.A. and then turned on him. 
absolutely love that angle. <clears throat> but I will say the reason why I didn't even consider two in uh, my top five was when I think of the most popular wrestler, I think of when someone is going to buy a wrestling ticket, they're going to go, I'm there to see Dusty Rhodes, or I'm there to see Andre the Giant, Tommy Rich, David Von Erich, Jerry Lawler. They just mentioned that name. No one says, I'm going to see Mr. Wrestling 2. I'm going to see Wrestling 2 versus Ernie Ladd. They did Mr. Georgia. Mr. Wrestling 2's popularity came from, I think, the angle and the opponent that he had, not so much the popularity that he had. I mean, it could be said the vice versa as well, but he every time he was in mid-south of Georgia, he sold. So, I mean, again, you may be completely right. I'm not a a huge two fan at this point and uh, I'm just going off the fact that in the biggest arenas around and in various promotions he's at the top of the card yeah I get what what Thomas is saying though and in a way he's right I have always put forward the theory that yes Bob Backlund was the draw uh, drew as WWF champion but people didn't throw down their money I want to see Bob Backlund I think they threw down their money I want to see WWF wrestling I want to see the WWF title defended like how many how many wrestlers go all over the place to see Andre the Giant in Ames Iowa or something like that and so so yeah I get that but I mean there's there's two sides of it go go ahead Sean how many wrestlers got invited to a presidential inaugural no good point (laughs) but that's because he was that's because he was Jimmy Carter's mom's favorite wrestler that was the only reason and Jimmy Carter, Miss Lillian was a, there was a, uh, and, um, you know, Jimmy Carter's mom was a woman of the people. <laughs> there you go. And with that, next week, we are going to continue. Uh, the next thing we're going to talk about next week is the PWI Most Hated Wrestler of the Year Award. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Once again, this is always the the fastest 60 minutes of my week. Thomas, thanks for coming on. Looking forward to having you back next week. Thank you guys for having me. Look forward to being on next week as well. All right. And by the way, it's not a pre-recorded show. We're actually going to come back uh, six days from now, December the 10th, and we're going to do part two. Um, I want to thank Sean Goodwin for everything he does for this show, my convivial co-host. Um, like He does a lot of things that you guys just don't see. Another guy who does things that you guys just don't see is Lou Kippelman. He, we give him a very raw product after 60 minutes of chatter, and he puts it all together and makes it sound good. So thank you, Lou. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in uh, and listening to stick to wrestling every week uh my name's john mcadam thank you again we'll see you next week go vols let's get a good bowl game stick to wrestling is a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network (laughs) 